trying and failing and abandoning really fast on the failures and then milking the crap out of the successes, right? And so it feels like you're failing a lot of the time, but then you ride one success for a really long time. Conversely, when we've been the least successful overall, it has not correlated much with failing over and over again. It is about getting stuck on one failure mode for a long time. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders. Before I introduce this week's guests, I wanted to ask everyone to leave a review in iTunes, as always, and this week, I actually got a two-star review, and this is the first time I've gotten a two-star and somebody's actually left a review, so I have to read this. It says, I learned nothing. Nothing is in caps. Need I say more? Typical boring questions. I learned nothing of the gas and oil industry. Not even an update on prices. Zero info. Information given was on an individual, and that was it. Well, folks, if you listen to the show, you know I interview people. I don't give you know, information on WTI or anything like that. So I guess he probably should have, I don't know, read the title of the podcast first. But anyway, on to our guests. I'm sitting here this afternoon with Ian Burgess, President and Chief Technology Officer at Validare Technologies. Ian, how's it going? Going okay. Can't yeah. complain about life. <laughs> don't have well, COVID. Yeah, yeah. Thank goodness for that. that. That you know of. <laughs> that's fair. I hope you're staying safe and all of that. Ian, let's discuss how you got started in the oil and gas industry. So, yeah, I mean, the short answer, the not romantic answer is I kind of stumbled backwards into the industry. I was a grad student. I mean, more or less came out, out of this relatively right out of grad school. And so what happened was I was working on different kinds of sensing technology, diagnostic technology. And we had at the time this material that basically you put it in a liquid and it, a pattern would appear and the pattern would tell you something about the liquid. And so what we did with that at first is naturally what you'd expect people in their early 20s to do with such a material is we made a shot glass that the word drunk appeared when you put more than 20% ethanol in the, the water. And the word drink appeared when it was less than 20% ethanol. And of course that got picked up in the news. <laughs> and so we got all kinds of you know, interest for people wanting to learn about this stuff. And one of the inquiries we got was from someone at the U.S. Department of Transportation. And this was, this was in 2013. It was right after the Lac Mégantic rail disaster. I don't know if you remember that. That's a, I do. a disaster in Canada. Rail car carrying crude or a train carrying crude rolled down a hill and, and derailed and exploded. And it yeah basically burnt a whole town down, a bunch of people died. And so one of the things that came out of the disaster investigation was that at the time anyway, the gas content in a lot of crude that was being transferred by rail was higher than what at least the regulators thought. And so there was interest in basically, how can we get better knowledge of what the composition of you know the commodities moving around in the supply chain are? And so they said, hey, you guys have a sensing technology. Why don't you go look at this? Could this do something with oil? And so over the next, call it, I don't know, is it two years and a bit? Initially, this wasn't the only industry that we were looking at and the only thing that we're doing. This is this kind of covers the end of my academic life and the beginning, very, very beginning of Validare before we had really got off the ground. We got to know the industry better and the problem better. And we got to learn two things. One is that this, you know, having a real-time, up-to-date understanding of your inventories, kind of where everything is and what it is compositionally, is really difficult in this industry and impacts a whole bunch of things that aren't just safety, right? So it impacts commercial decisions, it impacts operational decisions, it impacts, you know, 
environmental tracking. And the second thing we learned was that our technology was not the panacea solution for this problem. And so long story short, after initially, you know, founding the company to commercialize this technology, we realized that, you know, a problem focused company tends to be much more successful. And we really latched on this problem and said, what are we going to do to how do we solve this problem? And let's just do that. And so we ended up building, you know, the software company that we've built today, and then basically gave the patents back to Harvard and stopped trying to develop that technology. Right. And speaking of Harvard, what do you have degrees in exactly? Because you got a couple. <laughs> yeah. So my, my PhD degree is in applied physics. You know, there's a story in and of itself there. I started out doing, I mean, it was in, in a lab called the Lab for Nanoscale Optics. And I started out with the idea that I was going to do something in room temperature quantum computing. That was kind of my idea. Okay. And somehow I got stuck on a problem in that field that led me to try to make materials whose optical properties changed in response to different things. And then like you end up in sensing. And so I totally didn't even finish anywhere close to where I started. But I guess <laughs> if you put all those things together, you know, I learned about optics. I learned about fluid mechanics. I learned about kind of basic materials chemistry. It's like ended up being a pretty good training for an oil and gas guy. Yeah, I would say so. But it was, yeah, it was called applied physics. And then my undergrad was in, it's called mathematical physics. Basically, it's, it's, It was the physics program where you got to, to take more advanced math and exchange, not have to take any lab courses. And that seemed like a good trade at the time, <laughs> which I fully stand by 20 years later or whatever. <laughs> Excellent. Let's kind of go through some challenges you've been through through all of this. I mean, you said oil and gas came to you because of the incident and you were trying to solve a problem. So let's kind of go through what that problem is a little further. And I mean, did you solve it exactly? So I think, you know, one thing that was fortunate about the way we got into the industry was we and the backgrounds that we had, which were, again, not designed in advance. I can't take any credit for that. <laughs> but was that I think we started attacking the hardest part of the problem first, which I think has given us a lot of advantages as we get into scaling now. But the way I think about the problem now, you know, it's kind of the, the concise, relatable version is that I have more liquidity in the sense it's easier for me to find somebody selling what I want. I have more price transparency in the sense that I have an easier time verifying independently that I'm getting a fair price. And I have more trust in the, what I'm buying in the sense that the, you know, the specifications of what, I'm, what I paid for match the specifications of what arrive. When I buy a $150 used golf club on eBay compared to when I buy a million dollar plus shipment of physical crude from a public company. And that... You know, I think that statement both expresses roughly what the nature of the problem that we're trying to solve is and its magnitude, right? I mean, this is like, a, you know, $40 trillion of, of these commodities change hands every year, right? I think it's a big, big market. And in some ways, you can think of it as like, how do you take, you know, all of the market dynamics and efficiencies and resilience that the consumer goods market has in a world where you have Ebay's and you have Shopify and you have Amazon and bring that to this industry. And so we kind of started with, you know, when you think about breaking down this problem, what are the things that are going to be the same and what are going to be the things that are going to be different? And so the thing that's the same is kind of the core playbook, right? First, you have to create a shared knowledge base, right? A shared source of truth or a, uh, we call it, you know, a, a single system of record for inventories. It's like you have to have some map in some database of what things are and where they are, right? Yeah. And that was kind of, if you look at you know, Amazon in the early days, they're starting, that was the first thing they did, right? They could go to, go to the distribution choke point in the supply chain for books and work with the warehouse guys and map out everything's there. Once you do that, the next thing you, you need to do is make that information accessible. Now, in this industry, right, you don't have a zillion mom and pop shops necessarily, right? There's, there's right. fewer distinct entities that sell oil than sell, say, dolls. So 
making the information accessible applies within an organization as much as it does between organizations, arguably more. And it's basically, how do I make that knowledge of what I have and where it is at the fingertips of anyone who needs it across the organization? And importantly, how do I make sure that everybody's looking at the same information, right? Back to this idea that you have a shared source of truth, shared understanding of what's, what's, what's true, and you can validate that. So, and that generally, you know, you, you'll do that through a combination of, of, you know, what I call basic user interface, right? As well as, you know, analytics, right? Efficiency in search, predicting what people need to be look for, looking for, you know, it's like your, re- your book recommendations, all that kind of stuff, right? And then the third part is once you have, you've created a shared source of truth, you've now created, you made that information accessible, now you want to drive efficiency. And you drive efficiency, I mean, at a high level, you drive efficiency through analytics, but it's not just that you find better ways to do things. You need to get everybody across these organizations aligned on executing these things so that it becomes easy to execute. Because you can't, you know, if you look at, and this is one of the learnings that I think is maybe not the most important learning, but one of the important learnings and the underpins are the way we've gone about building our business is that if you look at analytics companies that have been successful to the point where they've really changed the way the industry behaves macroscopically, almost all of the first ones were in areas where it was trivial or fully automatable to execute on insights once you had them. Right, so algorithmic trading is a classic example. It's very hard to know when to make a trade, but it's easy to actually do it when you've decided to do it. And if you look at other industries where that's hard, I mean, I was the example of software companies have gone to the extreme extent of building their own cars in order to take control of the execution of driving decisions that they're trying to predict, right, and optimize. And they wouldn't make that decision lightly if control over the execution of the decision wasn't important. And so, in this industry, right, you want to move. Yes, Canadian units, you want to move a thousand cubic meters of oil, you've got to find 20 to 40 trucks, depending on the size of the truck, right? So that'd be like, you want to move five, 6,000 barrels of oil, you want to get, you need to get 20 to 40 trucks, depending on the, the size of the truck. You can't just snap your fingers, right? So it's like the part of the problem needs to be, how do you build that alignment across many independent agents in the organization? And how do you make it really easy for them to do what the data is saying is the thing that should be doing should be done so those are the parts that are kind of the same right that playbook again get to the truth make the information accessible and then drive efficiency right through both alignment and execution the things that are different what are the things that are different so the first one is probably which was one we we touched on already is this idea that this is an industry where executing on insights is not something you just snap your fingers, right? You have to really put some thought into how do you get how do you get act, results actually delivered, not just identified. The other ones that are different basically come from where does the information on these commodities come from, right? And at its core, inventory information in this industry comes from scientific equipment. And it comes from scientific equipment that is frequently not very close to big cities. Right. And so... If you look at the why now question, right? Why did you know this happen to consumer goods in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s? And why is this you know, just starting to happen in this industry now? I think the core reason is that, and we can see this even through the, the lifetime of our business, which is not that long, right? We, we started in earnest in 2016 in the oil and gas industry. Cell coverage has, gotten, has gone from not really good enough in many locations to good enough in most locations for unlimited amounts of data to be, or functionally unlimited amounts of data to be beamed to the cloud in a cost-effective manner. And what's happened is that before you had that transformation, you had all the IT infrastructure in these companies built with the idea that you had to heavily curate before you left the site. Most field data stayed in the field. And that created a challenge because it meant you were doing your curation of this scientific equipment generally far away from your scientists who were typically not in the field. And so I think that part is the hardest part. And the part that we focused on first, at first we didn't realize it was the hardest part, but we focused on first also just because that was where we came from. You know what I mean? We were scientists. We were interested in instrumentation. We, you know what I mean? It was kind of a natural, it was the natural entry point for someone with our background to get into this field. The third thing that's kind of different, right? We talked about the not trivial to execute on insights, scientific equipment in the middle of nowhere. 
The third one is is what I call is like blending problem, right? It is, you know, if I order a bottle of rum for myself and a bottle of Coke for my kids on Instacart, Instacart can pretty much do whatever it wants logistically and I'm still going to get a bottle of rum and my kids are still going to get a bottle of Coke. Whereas right. like in this industry, you know, the second that somebody decided to put our stuff in the same truck or the same tank, then we both get rum and Cokes, which is like less valuable for both myself and my kids. Right. So it's like the aggregate composition and the aggregate value of the commodity changed as a result of logistical decisions. And conversely, uncertainty over a step in the supply chain gives you uncertainty into what you have, not just where it is. Right. Right. Yeah. And the aggregate value of your commodities can change through the logistics in a way that doesn't really have an analogy in packaged goods. And so combine that with the scientific equipment problem. And that's really. I think the tough nut to crack. And once you crack that, then it's amazing the kind of efficiencies that you can drive. Again, we see largely for our clients over three areas, right? There's operational, better operational decisions. There's better commercial and marketing decisions. And there's better tracking and management of environmental footprint. Very good. So let's go over what you're currently doing now. Yeah. So in some ways, I kind of, in the description of the problem, describe what we're doing, right? So you can think about you know, I talk about that, you know, the whatever the Amazon eBay playbook mapped right. onto this industry to take into account those things, right? So the first thing right. is really about getting to the truth. And that requires you basically what, what, what we do is, you know, the core system of record we have is you are ingesting this information from the raw source that you have access to, right? Which can be flow meters, it can be uh, field lab samples, it can be third party lab data, it can be counterparty statements. And then you are abstracting this up to a layer that is, this is what's most likely true about your volume and composition everywhere, right? Now, to do that, to get over that the expertise boundary and the scientific boundary, you have to have two things that are important. One is a whole validation kind of analytics, right? And that, you know, comes in a few flavors. It's like, how do you know when something's out of calibration or when a sample should be invalidated? It's also when you have an unexplained result, like a plant imbalance, how do you, you know, get come up with a probability rank list of what's most likely wrong, right? right? And then how do you create tools, kind of easy to use tools that allow the people in the field to maintain this equipment properly, right? Right. So we have, that's kind of the boring bits of what I call the boring bits of validator that were built first, but I think are really critical to all of the other things that we do, right? It's just like this, you can go from, and we can really plug into any kind of raw data. That's kind of the other, the other assumption we made early in our life so far has turned out to be true is that there is a, you know, there are a number of different manufacturers of SCADA systems and instrumentation and all this stuff and, and different lab companies but the total number of them is very finite, which means that the effort, it's, it's going to be more scalable and ultimately a much better customer experience if you go towards the effort of doing all the ingest part yourself, right? You're not making the developers on the client side have to do a bunch of ingest and abstraction of the data before you can handle it. Like we do yeah. all of that. Yeah, right? it's, it's, it's all automated. So you're, you're, and you're the idea is that it's, it's not going to blow up from our cost perspective as long as there's only a handful of manufacturers of each data type, like you can, in the end of the day, you run out of them. You know what I mean? And so like, I use the example of like vapor pressure analyzers, you know, benchtop vapor pressure analyzer, inline vapor pressure analyzers, right? There is basically two brands that control the market, right? So it's like you learn how to interface with two, both of those brands and you've turned, you know, building a stitching layer to every single client into a problem of building a stitching layer into two kinds of instruments. So anyway, so that's, that's kind of that first layer. So you have the tools to, you know, really audit and then guide the field operators to be able to maintain the foundations for that truth. And then you give a accessible and presentable kind of slightly abstracted layer of what that truth is, right? What is your volume? What is your composition everywhere across your system? The other thing, the kind of more an analytics piece is built into that is that we also fill in the gaps. We call it our virtual analyzer add-on. But basically, how do you synthesize all this, this information? So if you're measuring you know, density and volume live at this location, but you have a whole bunch of other data points that are measuring other things, what's the best prediction of what your vapor pressure and your insulation profile and your sulfur content is at 
you know, at that same location in real time? And how equally importantly, what's the uncertainty in that information? How do you track that? So that's kind of yeah, that's yeah. That's that actually first... yeah. That was actually going to be my next question: is how do you scrub old, old data? How do you know what's correct and what's not? So it's a good question. So we have we think about kind of the analytics part of what we do. We divide it broadly into three categories. There's what I call predict, which is like you know I have something and it can be a, a composition, it could be a price, it could be a logistical cost, and I want to predict what it is. Right? So you have prediction algorithms. We 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 have what we call diagnostics. Sorry, I want to generally is why I want to diagnose why two numbers are different from each other, right? So it's like, why is this number way off spec? Or why is this number, you know, different from my model? Or why is the uncertainty, the difference between my 50% confidence and 90% confidence high? Or why is my predicted number really far from the number I just made my, my measure? And generally, the way that you understand the uncertainty in these things is kind of a combination of two things. Is one, you want to build redundant points of reference for as many data points as possible. And that's just like normal scientific method stuff, right? So it's like, let's say I'm, I have an analyzer that's measuring viscosity, right? And I have a bunch of lab at one location. And then I have a bunch of lab tests that are measuring. And I want to know if that, sorry, I want to know if that analyzer is accurate or not, right? I likely have a bunch of other lab tests at other locations. I have an accounting through, you know, if I synthesize all my meter data, I have accounting for where things went. And I have pretty basic physics formulas for you know how viscosity should propagate through a blending or separation process right and then i can compare the two so that's kind of the first thing i have these like multiple points of reference but then the second thing i need is a probability map for when two numbers disagree which one's more likely to be wrong and the short answer is that the way we have built that map is basically just by really meticulously keeping track of all of the things that we discover when these things are investigated over time, right? So the first time you see two numbers that are different, you know at least one of them has to be wrong, right? What do you typically do? You go take another lab sample, right? right? Exactly. Or, you know, you look at kind of the history of those instruments and the manufacturer specs of, you know, what, how likely things this thing is to go wrong versus that thing is to go wrong. What are the expected errors? And then you can end up with basically formulas where you can say when these two numbers are different, this one has a 70% chance of being wrong. And this one has a 30% chance of being wrong, right? right? Something like that. So that's kind of, those are the two things that we use to kind of ourselves figure out what the truth is, right? And then guide the users towards basically investigating and adding extra data points to shore up where there's uncertainty, right? But to only do it where they need to do it. That's like really, you know, it's important that those tools are giving them the most impactful things they can do, not just telling them to recalibrate every instrument every day. They're not going to do that, right? And then the last piece you need is kind of this making it accessible is you have to make it auditable, right? So you have to then present that information in a way that if I'm trying to, you know, teach internal stakeholders, if I'm the customer, or I'm trying to show a counterparty, why I'm accounting on this composition versus that one. It's got to be laid out in a way that the story tells itself. And that audit, you know, that's kind of one of the cool things of, you know, being an analytics company in this, in this space is that for a lot of this stuff, that audit is really important because it's like it doesn't count unless you can prove it to somebody else. Right. Yeah. That makes complete sense. Absolute sense. So, yeah, it's like the system record layer, right? It's kind of the first layer. You get, get to the truth. The next layer... It's more than just making, we talked about making the information accessible, making it auditable, you know, having you know where things are. I think more than that, it's how do you then analyze the data to allow priorities to surface, right? What do you mean by it's, that? How do you so, mean? Well, so give you an example, right? If you look at any category of value, let's say you're looking at, I want to increase my operational efficiency or I want to reduce my emissions, right? As an example. Like you want to ask the question, so what do you need to know to decide what should be a priority? Is one, you want to know what's the size of the prize and like what is the prize, right? Right, yeah. It's like how much, how much more can I, how much more efficient can I make this operation? And is there any value in that, right? It's kind of the same thing. It's like, you know, how much can I reduce my emissions practically? And how am I going to translate that into value? Am I going to trade carbon credits? Am I going to get government you know, government credits might reduce carbon tax burden, whatever, right? Same thing with trading decisions. Like, do I increase throughput in my terminal? Do I increase, do I need to get more choosy about what I'm buying so that I have more ARB in my terminal? 
all that kind of stuff. So that's the first question. What is the prize and how big is it? The second question is what is currently blocking you, most blocking you from capturing that prize? And generally there's, you know, it's like a chemical reaction. Everything has one rate limiting step. There may be many things that you need to do to get right, to get something to happen, but there's always one rate limiting step at any given point of time. So right. identifying what that is. And then the next question is, what will it take to unblock that? And, you know, do you want to do that? <laughs> what are the costs of that? And so we have in a number of things we do, and, we, and we're consolidating it now in what we call an executive value dashboard. But it basically, it lays this out in these steps. And the idea is that, you know, you combine that with giving you this auditability into your data, right, into what you have and where it is. And this, you know, grounded in this data, this really clear priorities, it becomes really easy to build alignment across the organization as to what really are the things, like if you only had time to do one thing this quarter, what should it be? And that in and of itself, we have found is really powerful. And in our most successful client engagement has probably, in hindsight, been the most important thing that we've done. So, you know, a classic example, we talked about the plant imbalance, right? You know what a plant imbalance is? No, I don't. Okay. So a plant imbalance is like, basically, I measure all the stuff coming into my plant. I measure all the stuff going out of my plant. And I shouldn't have lost anything or gained anything. But for some reason, 8% of my condensate volume is missing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was it measurement error? Did I actually leak it somewhere? You know what I mean? Was it evaporation? So on and so forth. Did somebody, you know usually accidentally mischaracterized how much or what they gave you, right? And if they did, who was it? And so, you know, in that problem, what aligning on shared priorities looks like is basically, you know, you have your visualization tools to see this balance and to see what it looks like and to see which subbalances are imbalanced. But then you get this probability ranked list of what the most likely cause is. And so if you're investigating this, because ultimately, you know, it's a lot of money on the table if 8% of your condensate's missing. Right. Right. You now have kind of driven by science, you know, instead of 20 people saying, oh, I think it's this. Oh, I think it's that. Let's prove every all of the 127 meters in our plant one by one. Right. It's we're going to start with these things. Right. And so in the case of that, for example, you know, with our smart balancer code, the first iteration of this, we found that 90 percent of the time, the true major cause was in the top five that were surfaced. And 50 percent of the time it was the number one. And that's actually about in line with the probabilities that spit out of the code, right? Like if you have uncertainty, you shouldn't expect that 100% of the time you expect your number one to be the, the right answer. And then you kind of, you can say the same thing, right? Like if you look at a marketing decision, it's like if I want to increase, you know, again, let's use examples of refinery or it's a terminal or plant, right? It's like, do I increase my profit by increasing my volume or by increasing my profit per barrel or both, right? And if I want to increase my volume, is there enough out there in the world? You know what I mean? Am I not doing it now because it doesn't exist? Am I not doing it because I don't know where it is? Am I not doing it because I know where it is, but I'm not offering a competitive enough price, right? Those are questions that all have answers that turn out to be largely, at least probability weighted cut and dry, right? And so at its core, you know, that aligning on shared priorities, that's really what it's about. And if you look at all of the analytical tools that we build on top of that system record, most of them are aligned for that. And then the last part is executing results, right? That we're driving, we want to ultimately be responsible for driving results and not just insights. Well, yeah, it's the entire reason you're into it, right? Yeah. And so I think one of the things that is probably differentiates us from a lot of other software companies as a result of this is that we have a much more white glove services team than basically anybody that's anywhere close to kind of a competitor for us in this space. And our thought really there is, is that if you don't understand the insight, that's our fault, right? Because in the end of the day, the probability of like, you don't get value unless insights are, you know, good insights are serviced and they're actually executed on. And they're not going to execute on, they're not going to be executed on like, not just because, not just if they're not serviced, it's like they need to be serviced they need to be understood and then they need to be made easy to execute on. And so we really take responsibility for all of those things. And we really believe that friction in executing 
is as important to obsess over as finding what the best insights are. And so, yeah, that manifests itself in a lot of the way we not just represent our product to the clients, but also how we deliver it as it's being developed. But something that has always been with us since the beginning and is never going to go away is that we really pride ourselves on having, you know, the most knowledgeable, most engaged, most white glove services team, really of every software company that we've seen. And I think that that's like being really head and shoulders above everybody else in terms of customer service. Again, not just the quantity and availability, but the caliber of people we put on that team is really important to us. And I think really important to success we've had so far and will be important to us ultimately executing our long-term vision. Yeah. And and what's amazing about that is that I think that's how most people feel is that white glove service. Customers need to stick around, but they need that loyalty and that attention. Yeah. Yeah. So if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? So let me try to say it this way. I have in my mind what I call a meta piece of advice. I am surprised as to how much advice that is is both useful and counterintuitive derives from. And so what I always say is like my philosophy in life is that I believe in the second law of thermodynamics. And I also believe that a plurality of the time that smart people do stupid things, it's because they have suspended their belief in the second law. What is that law exactly? So everybody understands. Yeah. So the second law of thermodynamics is the entropy one, right? And it basically says that, you know, in a closed system, entropy always increases, which doesn't, okay, that doesn't mean anything to the average person. So the way I always explain it, right, is really the second law of thermodynamics is like really the law of compound probabilities, but extended to many bodies, right? And basically what it says is that it takes an extraordinary amount of effort to do something that's unlikely to happen by chance, given the constraints that you apply to the system. So let me give you some examples that like relate to our business of learnings. If we call that the meta learning, let me give you some kind of more accessible learnings that derive from that. So one, and this is like talking to you know people like me back in the day where you are trying to commercialize a scientific discovery. The learning, which is counterintuitive, and it amazes me that how many tech transfer offices that you know come people that come with physical chemistry backgrounds like get this wrong like the way they try to get you to think about commercialized technology. The learning is that the odds of your technology that you developed in a lab, not for the purposes of solving an industry problem, being the ideal solution to any industry problem is vanishingly small. And so the burden of proof, you know, most academic startup founders that I knew, myself included, kind of started with this burden of proof that this thing that I've made has to be a panacea for something. It's just a matter of me, a matter of me finding the something. Whereas the opposite assumption is the better burden of proof. And so the, the analogy I always like to use is like, and this is a good good way to bring this back to the second law, is suppose that I have a thousand two by fours, like pieces of wood. Mm-hmm. And I imagine what a physicist would call microscopic state is like, I imagine all of the possible configurations in space of a thousand two by fours. And then I divide them into two categories. Again, what physicists would call macroscopic states. One macroscopic state is called, or category is called a house. Like this is a functional house. The other category is called not a house. (laughs) Now, which, you know, I'll ask, I assume you're not a physicist. I haven't looked up your background. No, not at all. Not whatsoever. My background is regulatory compliance. (laughs) So which category has more possible configurations in it? A house or not a house? Ooh. How many more ways can I configure two by fours? Probably not a house, right? Yeah, for sure. There's like, there's yeah. zillions, zillions more ways to make, configure two by fours in a way that's not a house than are, there's very few that are a house, right? And so now let's flip the problem around and let's say, so I'm now a scientist playing around with a thousand two by fours. And let's say I'm testing their hardness or, you know, who knows what, right? But I'm playing around with two by fours for the purpose of learning about two by fours, not the purpose of building a house. Now, you know, at some point I do something like in my case, you make a whatever shot glass and it goes to the press. So you freeze what the scientist is doing at a particular point in time. Now I'm going to ask you the question, what is the probability of that frozen configuration 
being a house versus not a house? Like, is it is it more likely that it's not a house or is it more likely that it's a house? Oh, you're asking me. I thought you were. <laughs> yeah, I'm asking you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess a house. It's extremely more likely that it's not a house, right? We just said there's millions more right. ways to make yeah. not a house than to make a house. So if I'm just playing randomly around with things, not for the purpose of making a house, right? Nobody told me to make a house. I'm just doing science with, with wood. Right, 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 right. Like the odds that I ended up with a house in that process is vanishingly small, right? Yeah, because I mean, the possibilities are endless. Yeah, but somehow now replace wood with, you know, responsive materials and replace a house with a optimal sensor for oil properties, right? It's right. like literally the same thing. It's like, what are the odds that the random materials I was playing around with turn out to be the optimal panacea for making the oil market more transparent, right? It's like the answer is close to zero. And I could replace oil with any other market, right? And that would be true. And that's like, generally, if you want to build a house, you have to specify that you have to build a house, right? Yeah. And then people will build a house and it'll, it'll take more effort than it'll take to make any, like it takes more effort to build a house than to destroy a house because you're going like not a house is a higher entropy state than a house, right? That's what entropy basically means. There's more ways to make not a house than to make a house. So it takes more energy to build a house, which is go from not a house to a house than it is to destroy a house, which is go from a house to not a house, right? So that's, that's kind of for our business. The lesson that we learned and we could have learned earlier was that you have to focus your business on the problem and come up with whatever solution you need to to solve that problem rather than focusing on a solution that you didn't develop with that problem in mind and try to force it onto any problem. And so many academic startup founders, I amazingly with numbers so with advanced much. degrees in physics who know the second law, myself included, initially at least get that wrong. And the tech transfer offices, my experience generally, don't encourage you to think that way. They right. encourage you to suspend your belief in the second law. So that's, that's one example of the second law. Here's another example, which will maybe sound unrelated, but one of my other, it's like, remember we said this, 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 this whole idea that reducing friction is really important. It's not enough to say that you could run your plant this way and you make more money. You have to make it easy for them to do it, right? And that includes like making sure people understand, right? And that are bought in and all this stuff. And so it's like, it's exponentially harder to get a linearly increasing number of people to configure themselves in a way that's unlikely to happen by chance, right? So it's like, if I want something done, if I do it myself, it'll get done, let's say, 95% of the time. If I ask somebody who works for me to do it, let's say it gets done 80% of the time. If I ask a client to do it, it'll get done maybe 40% of the time. Now, compound probabilities. Now, I have a task that requires two clients to behave, to do something specific, independent of each other, right? If the odds of each of them getting it done 40% is 40%, then the odds of the two of them getting it done is 40% times 40%, which is 16%, I think. Right? Right. And you can see how that exponentially gets less likely the more people you have involved. Right. And so, what that means is if you're in the business of ultimately, you know, helping your clients make better decisions, you can't just be hit and run. Here's your insights. Bye bye. You know what I mean? You have to actually help them. You have to make it easier for them to do the thing that's right than to do something else that's random. Right. And that's how you. The individual probabilities get high enough. That's what alignment really means, right? Once you align people, everyone on a goal, then people's probabilities are correlated, right? So now everybody has, collectively, you have an 80% probability of success rather than everybody individually having an 80% probability of success, but uncorrelated, which means that if there's 10 people, it's 80 to the power of 10. 80% to the power of 10 is the probability of it actually getting done, right? That's what alignment really means. So that's kind of, again, I pull that back to the second law. The other one that is the last one I'll, I'll say is kind of probably more loosely related, but it's the same kind of idea of understanding probability is success correlates to the time average of my successes and failures, not the number of successes and failures. And like, if I look back on things that have worked for us, it's generally been trying and failing and abandoning really fast on the failures and then milking the crap out of the successes, Right. And so it feels like you're failing a lot of the time, but then you ride one success for a really long time. Conversely, when we've been the least successful overall, it has not correlated much with failing over and over again. It is about getting stuck on one failure mode for a long time. Yeah. And when you fail, you're supposed to learn from those things, you know, basic Einstein quote, you know. Yeah. So. so that's my unaccessible version. I believe in the second law of thermodynamics. Those are some examples of things I derived from that. But second Excellent. law of thermodynamics is really the law of compound probabilities. It's kind of the same thing. <laughs>
So I would assume you're an avid reader. So which book influenced you the most and why? Okay. Tough to pick one. Okay. So let me say the first thing that I think is the reading exercise that I learned the most from is I've done this a few times, but if there's a topic I'm really interested in, I'll read five books that have slightly different viewpoints in back to back. And the idea then is that you, you end up making, you can hear the strongest argument on all sides of an issue and you end up kind of being able to synthesize from the collective of the books what's likely to be true, what might be true, and what's probably not true. So I've done that with a few things, and it's been really, really cool, actually. So I, I highly recommend that. In terms of individual books, I would say, let me pick three. It's hard okay. to pick one, but let me pick three that I've really liked for different reasons. Okay. So one is a book called Scale by Jeffrey West, that uh, British Jeffrey, so G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. And it's basically about how scaling laws, like there's a number of phenomena, like ranging from, you know, why do almost all mammals have a maximum lifespan that's roughly the same number of heartbeats? Kind of like small mammals have faster heart rates and shorter lifespans, and larger mammals have slower heart rates and, and longer lifespans. And then they'll have other things like, why do within a, a single economic system, the GDP per capita increases with population density in a roughly power law relationship. Anyway, and this book basically looks at all these different things and then kind of derives the fundamental relationship that you can pull out of these scaling laws. In each case, it tells you something really pro profound about the system that is hard to change and therefore a good kind of anchor point when you think about, you know, designing a business or designing public policy, etc. That was a really interesting book. In terms of business books, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss is probably my favorite. This is the FBI hostage negotiator becomes business negotiator. And I think, you know, the whole thing, you know, there's a lot of books that talk about the importance of, you know, kind of what I'll call the science of the deal, right? Finding win-wins. And there's a bunch of books that talk about the human part, Right. It's kind of like, well, it's important that in the end of the day, people make decisions based on emotion and all that kind of stuff. But what I like about his book is it kind of marries the two in a way that says, yeah, you know, the emotion, the emotional needs are really important. It's not just about finding kind of the win wins on paper, but there's also a science to that. You know what I mean? And it's yeah. kind of, and the way he presents it, kind of a combination of experience, like anecdotes, really interesting ones, obviously that interesting life and data was really cool. And then the other two, so I'm actually going to, I'm going to have four books. I lied. <laughs> the the other two that I think have been really interesting for me that I think it's kind of revolved around a society. What I think is a societal problem I'm probably most interested in understanding what's going to happen and what the possible solutions are. But also it's like a business problem I'm really interested in kind of that, you know, as, as an investor, I've looked at and through the, this fund I'm involved with, we've invested in a number of companies trying to do this. It's basically like, what does the future of education look like in terms of adapting to the structural changes about the economy that's happened, right? And kind of in the information age. And mm -hmm. so the two books that I found really interesting that kind of helped me think about this topic, one is called The Case Against Education by Brian Kaplan. And what I love about this book, and actually the next one I talk about too, is I love reading books that are a really strong argument for a thesis I've just never thought of before, right? Not necessarily right. that I end up agreeing with the thesis. And Brian Kaplan, he has all of his books, right? He's got The Case Against Education. He's got Selfish Reasons for Having More Kids. And he's got The Myth of the Rational Voter. They're kind of all interesting because they're all kind of like that and they're all different from each other. But I think the core kind of diagnostic that I think is probably right in what he presents, I think is ultimately the answer for why, you know, ed tech has been around for 15 years, but the universities haven't collapsed yet. Right. So that was interesting. And then the other one that's kind of touching on the same topic in a different way is a book called Innate by Kevin Mitchell. And the idea is basically, I don't know if you've heard of, I think it's called Turkheimer's Three Laws, but it's like, it's true for almost all kind of behavioral traits. So behavioral traits is behavioral traits, not like I'm a doctor, right? It's like, you know, 
what's your you know big five personality traits for example like extroversion agreeableness iq would be an example yeah briggs susceptibility to certain psychiatric disorders for example and if the turkheimer's flu laws basically say one about half of the variance of people on these traits is explained by genes so like your odds of being really smart is roughly half your genes the impact of what's called the shared environment. So that's like all the things that siblings have in common. So it's all your upbringing, all the things that people think really matter, right? The nurture is small, typically 10% or less. And then there is a significant chunk, which is like the remainder, 40 to 50%, that is unexplained. And that could be, you know, they call it typically in the scientific literature, the non-shared environment. So that could be, you know, it could be your peer pressure, right? It could be you know, different traumas that you encounter, but not related to the family in the way that siblings would experience it the same way. And there could be measurement error in the tests for IQ or extroversion or any of these other things. And what this book, the theory this book makes a case for, which is, again, it's I hadn't, heard, I hadn't thought of before. And I would say that the evidence they present is like not conclusive, like it's early, this field is early in its development, but it's like enough to take a serious look at is that the primary contributor to this third category, this unexplained category, is basically random molecular fluctuations that occur during the development of the brain, <laughs> i.e. complete luck. But not luck in the sense of like, you know, so-and-so had a bad, fell into a bad peer group or whatever, like real luck in the sense right. of like, you know, yeah, like molecular fluctuations, luck. Okay. So it's anyway, really interesting, makes you think about. That's actually interesting. I think I'm, I'm going to look into that one myself. So yeah, I yeah. apologize. That was four books. It wasn't one. But if I had to, <laughs> if I had to pick, those are probably the four books. Well, they influenced like you and that's what matters. And that's exactly what I wanted to hear. What's your most used business tool? So I think I'm going to rephrase that. What's the business tool that I use the most that maybe is distinct from what everybody else in the company uses? I really like this daily planner called Sunsama. And full disclosure, I like this so much that that I ended up investing in this company. So there's there's conflict of interest disclosed. <laughs> okay. You know, there's lots of PM tools out there, right? Project right. management tools. Oh, absolutely. But this one is the first PM tool that I felt like was centered on me and organizing my life. And I could put my work stuff and my life stuff in there. And it's hard to describe the user interface. Like, it's just really useful for that. And what I found is interesting is like when we were back when they were making their investor pitch, and this is in, when they were in Y Combinator, a number of us that were kind of the part-time partners and full-time partners of this thing called the Pioneer Fund, which is like the YC Alumni Investment Fund, it's not officially sanctioned by YC, but it's just a bunch of YC alumni got together in, is that independently, you know, probably seven of us had started using this tool and really liked it. And that was kind of ultimately what we made the investment decision based on. Oh, that's interesting. It's hard to describe why it's so useful. It's like, and that was the thing. It's again, I remember we were having the investor pitch conversation, like internally, it's like, you can't put your finger on what it is, but it's also, it's interesting. It's like people who use it in our organization, use it more to plan their personal, you know what I mean? Their work and personal and everything more than like it's used as a tool to do projects across the organization. And in terms of other tools, I think the other one that we started using recently that I'm surprised is the kind of tool that I didn't think that I would like as much as I do is this tool called CultureAmp. It's basically, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's like for managing HR. So it's kind of like you, you do your employee reviews, people do self-reflections, you put your, your personal OKRs in there, and it's like a performance, it's like a performance management tool, basically. Again, I'm not doing it. A lot of these tools, it's hard to describe why they're useful. You just kind of have to use them. Yeah, so no, I get it. That I get it. stand out for me. Again, it's Sunsama, S-U-N-S-A-M-A, and Culture Amp, one word. I'm writing this down for myself. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I'm really interested in the Suntamo one. It reminds me of some sort of integration, like if I had planner and then also my calendar all in one. Yes, man. It's hard to describe why it's useful. It just is. Yeah. I mean, I assume you live out of your calendar like I do and, you know, constantly have something going on and, yeah, and particularly when I juggle was, everything. Which, I mean, it was going to happen again when, you know, this everyone gets vaccinated. But like when I was traveling, I was traveling three weeks a month back before the lockdowns. And it's just particularly when I was traveling, it's just like the number of things you have to remember. It's just, yeah, it's hard to describe. It's like, and I've used a lot of PM tools and I can't put my finger on why this one stuck with me. 
Well, and what better reason to put your money into it? I mean, that's cool in itself. It's like, hey, this is really great. I should put my money, my own money into that. That speaks eons. Yeah, actually, by the way, speaking of what I think about like other ones like that, another one that we use that's another one that we invested in is, is called Dover. It's like an AI recruiting firm. It's hard oh. to describe. It's like, basically, it's like candidate sourcing. They, you know, cross-reference LinkedIn and GitHub and, and like suggest candidates for roles and you can automate the first reach out to them. The other thing I like about them is like, they're kind of like us. Their customer service is really good. Yeah, that's always so not important. just that their product is good. So yeah, it's, it's uh, I think it's Dover.io. Okay. D-O-V-R. Sorry, D-O-V-E-R. Yeah, I was going to say like like the capital. Yeah. All right. Dot I-O. Let me just check if it's Dover.io or Dover.co. I think it's Dover.io. Yeah. And I'll, no, I'll put that. Dover.com now. That's good. Is it Dover.com? Okay. Well, I'm glad, yeah. we, I'm glad you Dover, checked. Well, I, typed in, I typed in Dover.io and it redirected to Dover.com. So either works. I guess they own both domains. Well, that's one way to do it. So who would you say is your most respected competitor? So here's the thing. We have different categories of competitors and adjacencies. And I would say there are the ones that give us friction now and the ones that I worry about long term. And by and large, I would say there's not a lot of overlap between those two categories. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the question that I'm trying to decide whether I need names, by the way, that's part of the reason why I'm stalling here. One question I think that goes back to how this problem ultimately gets solved in the industry. I think there's really a question as to whether this is going to get best solved by a company that is a vertically focused analytics as a service company like us, or whether this is going to be a horizontally focused, you know what I mean? It's kind yeah. of like, you know, we're AI for everything and oil. And I think the answer is probably a vertically focused one. And I, I always come to that as the idea is like one abstraction that I like or kind of colloquialism for what we do is automated advice for executives. And if you think about it that way, if that's for like any company that's providing insights, right? You can almost break it down that way. Yeah. And if you're going to really give relevant automated advice for executives, you need to have a breadth of inputs into the, of information that match the breadth that, that executive would have to be relevant. And that tends to require or tends to push companies towards verticalizing if they do it well, right? Because you need to you need to focus in some area, and because you have to be have breadth at the scope of who your clients are, you tend to be able to focus on a smaller number of clients. And the same thing with, you know, we're in an industry where we have to, reducing friction on executing insights is important. You kind of say the same thing, right? If it's, a, if it's like coming up with insights is not enough and you have to really make it tools and services to make it easy to execute on them, you're also going to tend to gravitate towards a world where you're more vertical. But if you were going to, you know, say, well, fine, but I'm going to be so big and so well-funded kind of horizontal traditional Silicon Valley tech company that I'm going to be able to do this in many verticals. I think you'd have to have that right attitude that like, again, it's not like finding the answer is not good enough. You have to have the breadth of input that matches the, the insight you want to make. And you have to really take ownership over the execution. I think of the Silicon Valley giants, there's one in particular that who I'm actually not going to name that I think has got that Right. Whereas many of the ones that we see most actively in oil have not got that right. And they've actually been fairly, they've turned out to, as a result, not really be the kind of competitors that have given that much trouble to us. That's, that's good. Not too much trouble then. <laughs> but there's one in particular for sure that I think that we keep a close eye on. Well, yeah. I mean, nothing like friendly competition, you know, it, got, it, it, it motivates the spirit, I believe. Yeah. So... Why is your role now important to the future of the industry? Well, so, I mean, we talked about this in the break, right? I think that, I mean, I don't think my role is so important in the sense that I'm not replaceable. Right. But, you know, in the end of the day, my role is to make the company successful. And I think the importance of the role to the industry, therefore, is, you know, lies in the importance of what we're trying to do as a company, right? Which is really get to the place where, you know, in terms of efficiency, resilience, right? Adaptability to change, maybe a better word. Right. Yep. Market dynamics. And 
don't know if transparency is not quite the right word. Maybe intelligibility might be a better word, but particularly for things like environmental metrics. It's like the idea that we actually know where we are, right? Getting that visibility into where we are and where things are and what things are, right? And that shared source of truth, right? It's kind of, it's not just that it's transparent, but that it's intelligible so that I understand why the world is the way it is and therefore what my options are. It's like we're trying to bring those things, kind of that, that intelligibility, the efficiency, the adaptability into this market and really bring it to the level that many other markets of equal or frankly smaller size have begun to take for granted, right? If you look at the, you know, consumer goods, other markets like that. Yeah. And I think it's really important, you know, that, you know, it's, it's obviously important for our clients. Again, it, it really impacts the commercial decisions. It impacts the operational decisions and it impacts the environmental decisions which are increasingly important to be able to get to the place where you really have that level of, you really have that level of sophistication in terms of how information is managed. And also, yeah, if we're in, if we're in a world where, you know, the global demand for oil is going to be slowing and, you know, the efficiency of the market and the environmental footprint of the market starts to matter more than, you know, just get as much as we can because we're starving. I think it only makes these problems that we're trying to solve more salient. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. So do you have a favorite podcast? I have to say, I have never listened to more than one episode of any podcast. And it's <laughs> not because I have anything against podcasts. It's just that, you know, I like listening to things that teach me stuff in my spare time. Right. But audiobooks have just become my favorite medium. And it has for a lot of people, especially with, the, you know, the pandemic in place. You know, it's either it's, you know, you're binging Netflix or you're binging podcasts or you're binging audiobooks. So, yeah. Definitely and, you know, one thing that's interesting about an audiobook versus a podcast is that you get to play around with an idea from different perspectives in a way that you can't always in a podcast just by nature of the fact that if it's somebody's podcast, like their perspective is always going to be center, right? So it's like, remember I said that exercise that I really enjoy, which is you pick a topic, you know, for example, like poverty in the US, and you read five or six books that have different pet theories right back to back. And yeah, I just feel like, I learned so much from that exercise. And that's very conducive to audiobooks. Right, yeah. You get to differentiate which views are more proficient. And what part, well, it's not just like, it's not just like book two is wrong and book three is right. It tends to be more like, you know, for each book, you can almost break it down to like, here is the thing that's true. Here is the part that might be true. Here is the part that's probably not true. Here is the place where the logic chain is tenuous. And, you know, here is if I take the part that's true out of the five books and I put them together, what's the maybe more fundamental truth that's being missed? Yeah. Yeah, I see that. Definitely. Well, speaking of podcasts, OGGN has a few new shows coming out for everyone to check out if you're interested. Of course, I'm also a co-host of Bowl and Guest this week with Mark LaCour. So check me out on the other show. What we have coming up are energy scale-ups with Jose Solis, OGGN News with Savannah Wilson. Oil and Gas Digital Doers with Michael O'Sullivan, Careers in Energy with Ali Kashi, and Oil and Gas Sales and Marketing with Mark LaCour and Michael O'Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ian. If people want to reach out to you or, and or get to know more about Validare, how might they go about doing so? Yeah, I like this. Like, do you have social media? Well, you have LinkedIn, I kind of, so I definitely yeah, made I sure I put that in media there. Except for LinkedIn. Yeah, that's like basically... The only way to reach out to me on social media these days is LinkedIn. I've kind of purged the rest of my social media. I don't blame you. It's pretty overwhelming these days. You know, it's funny. It's my, my brother did it first and it was interesting to see him do it. And the realization that you didn't actually need it that much and you ended up feeling better. Surprise. Well, yeah, it takes right? a, it takes a lot of pressure off. Just it takes all the noise out of your life. I almost feel. Yeah. There's some, yeah, there's certainly some, there's, there, there's some downsides, but yeah, overall it's kind of particularly, you know, I'm in, in a time in my life with young kids and just kind of the job I have, I already have enough stimulation. Yeah, so no kidding. I, I don't need, I need to kind of, I'm in, the, I'm in kind of cutting out stimulation phase rather than. How many kids do you have? Two, two daughters. Two daughters. Two. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy it while they're little. You know what, though? We've been lucky. You know, as far as being locked down is concerned, I think, you know, our daughters really 
they're the kind of kids that one are really sweet to each other most of the time and two can sit down and work on a craft for hours at a time which is like it's kind of a real bonus for sanity when you're all quarantined or locked down in the same apartment yeah got to keep those brains stimulated yeah all right well that concludes this episode so just remember it's up to you to open the next door now here's savannah with events on deck Hey everybody, it's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for June 2021. This month we have six events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events that I talk about here. We even include events that occurred two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting two events. One is online and one is in person. For our online event, we're hosting a live stream titled Deal Value Creation, M&A, and ONG. This is going to be on June the 2nd. And for our in-person event, we're relaunching our happy hours. It's been far too long since we had a good happy hour, so I'm sure plenty of you will be excited to hear that our next happy hour will be at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on June 24th. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. We hope to see you there. Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events, which are the Energy Capital Conference on June 2nd at the Omni Houston Hotel and the U.S. Police and Fire Championships from June 10th to the 21st. The Police and Fire Championships will be hosted in multiple locations, so make sure to check out our events newsletter for more information about that. Next, we have our two online events, the first being the Post-Industrial Summit Series. This event actually started on May 4th, but it'll be ending later this month on June 22nd, so there's still plenty to see. And our second online event is the Big Data Industry Summit from June 9th to 10th. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for June. I hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.